Bandwidth for June has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y, and let them know that you heard about them here on 5x5. I, I'm Andy Mangold, by the way. Oh, and I'm Matt McInerney. No, actually, it's Dan Hour. Here we go. Three, two, one. We recorded this episode on May 26th, 2015. This is On The Grid, episode 117. This week, Andy shared an idea for a new kind of design education or new types for design criticism. Here we go. So, I got a question for you two. Uh, you know, I think, what was it, like three or four months ago, when did uh, when did Apple release the new version of, uh, of OS X and iOS that had the different skin tone emojis? When did that come out? Oh, that was only like a couple of weeks ago. Like a fit, like the actual release was only like a few weeks. It's ago. Relatively new, I guess. Um, yeah. You know, I, I am of course thrilled that we now have you know actual. I mean, somewhat of more of a diverse representation in our emojis. Emoji is a burgeoning language. I think people are legitimately communicating in new, interesting ways through it. So, you know, good that we have full spectrum of different skin tones represented there. I am presented with a problem with this though, which is which skin tone do you use? I mean, do you just, I mean, like, I'm, I'm a white dude. Do I just... Are you saying, should you be, are you yellow? Are you yellow or are you specific skin tone? Are you trying to hold up your phone to your hand and trying to match? Well, that's the thing is, you know, before when everyone was just yellow, we didn't have this choice to make. Uh, and of course, I'm glad now we have these options, of course, but it presents us with, with presents me with a conundrum because I, I guess the idea is you're supposed to pick the color you are, right? That's the whole point or not. Mm. I think you get to choose whatever you want to do. If you've decided, you can be whatever you want, right? Well, I think what the problem is, is, is what it does is it, it makes the emoji about race to some degree, even if you didn't intend it. Like, I, so I, I've been def- defaulting to, this, to the default yellow ones, but they made the default yellow ones a little more yellow when they introduced the skin tones because it was more of a neutral yellow before, but they wanted to distance it from, I guess, the lighter skin tones, so they made it, like, really yellow, like primary color yellow. And sure. it looks a little strange. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. And it's like, you know, I, I think that uh, that people of color are underrepresented in the media. Uh, are my tweets the media? Should I be using uh, you know, emoji of darker skin tones? Probably not. That seems to not be right either. I find myself with a conundrum. You can just do what we do in language, which is like whatever the majority is, we don't point it out. So you get to be default because default in all situations are uh, an Andy Mangold type. And then anything else would require a clarification. It's like your joke about Stefan Sagmeister, notable white designer. Yeah, but that's the thing is the default is now looking, looks bad. Like the yellow looks like a Simpsons like hand now or something. Yes. It's weird. And some of these emojis too are just stuck on yellow and you're actually not able to get um, the different choices of skin colors either. Like some of them that are just really? faces of like, like the girl who's waving or doing hand motions or whatever like that. No, you can't change those. Uh... I think you can. No, I'm doing it right now. I like, think that's sir- the whole thing. I'm going to do it right now. Hold on. I'm getting my phone out. This is what people okay, tune good. into the podcast for. Dude, one with your hand up. I got all kinds of skin and hair combinations I'm looking at. I'm looking at six different combos. Ooh, wait. Oh, wait. No. For some reason, it wasn't giving me the option. So, Dan, Dan, you can set your default and say, I always want it to be this uh, for each emoji. Uh, and basically, the first time you choose, it will say, this is your new default, you know, whatever girl with her hands over her head emoji. And you yeah. have to hold tap on it for longer to see the options. No, no, okay, so I was doing that, but for some reason, some of these are loading in as I do them? Some of them are still not giving me the option. No, I'm doing it too, and some of them are not giving the option. Some are. Yeah. Well, bug report. Wait a minute. This is, hey. this is yeah. your iOS QA podcast where we test. Yep. Cats. Cats can only be yellow, Andy. That's bullshit. I think that's true. That's not an accurate representation of cat. Yeah, well, it's a cat. I mean, I guess they could have, like, what, tabby cats and... Actually, you know what's funny about that? I was listening to a podcast the other day, the Mark Maron Show, with a comedian named Tommy uh, Davidson. Mark who? Mark Maron. Uh, not, not familiar, not familiar. Sure. Not, not, not a big deal in the podcast world. Nope. So Must I was listening it. to that show, and it was a comedian named Tommy Davidson who was on. Um, I guess he was kind of abandoned when he was a little kid. Uh, oh, he's a black comic that makes the story make sense. He was abandoned when he was a little kid and adopted by a white family. And was never really, race was never really brought up until he was like five or six. So he was just like, yeah, I just thought people were like cats where you could have just all of a sudden a, uh, a tabby cat has like a yellow cat and a brown cat and a black cat. And it just happens that what way. What a beautiful and idea. And it was until later in life that I found out that 
this was an issue, and when my mom had to explain the N-word to me. Uh, I'm trying to remember the term. There's a special term for uh, certain animals that will have genetic mutations where directly down the, like, uh, the lateral axis of their body, like, one half will look one way and the other half will be subject to a totally different set of genes. Mm-hmm. It happens particularly in cats. I'm going to find pictures of this now. Is this similar uh, to what happens with eyes, where one eye is one color and one is the other? I can't remember what that's called, but... You it know, can be related to that. That thing David Bowie and Husky Dogs have? <laughs> yes, exactly. David Bowie and Husky Dogs. That's what it says. <laughs> oh, gosh, wait. I made my girlfriend laugh upstairs. That was pretty good. Yeah. That should be the show title, by the way. David Bowie and Husky Dogs? Yeah. Writing that down. Oh. Anyway. Okay, so uh, it's actually what... It's, the word is chimera, like... A non-mythology chimera, like chimera in genetics, is the term ah, okay. for, uh, and that—that's the idea. That's the thing you're basically describing, I, as I understand it. Like the idea that you can have. Uh... I'm gonna read this Wikipedia page later. It's not interesting to listen to me read Wikipedia pages online, but uh, or on the on air. Can't hear you. Are you there? Oh, Andy's gone. Andy's gone. Can you hear me, Andy? And he's gone. Welcome back. Hi. I am a, I, I like to consider myself a fairly smart guy, but I can't figure out the Wi-Fi problem in my house to save my life. You know, it's like there's so many different places for the problem to be. It could be the modem. It could be the router. It could be my specific machine. And you have to test every single one of these little points along this chain trying to figure out what the problem is. Basically, like, I've got a brand new router. We got moved into this house because it was, needed a bigger router because it's a bigger house. And uh, it just doesn't... It just cuts out every 20 minutes sometimes. Just cuts out. And then oh. the only way to get it to come back on is to turn off the Wi-Fi and turn it back on real fast. And if you do that, it's, it's okay. It's worse than that, though, because it's not like you ever really know. Remember we were talking about that Roderick on the line and then guitar pedals and they're like, for whatever reason, yeah. musicians enjoy their equipment. Yeah. But I, I always think about stuff like that where it's like a series of pedals hooked into a guitar. And like, yes, you do have to go down the chain, but it's really easy to tell if your boss pedal is unplugged. You yeah. Know, oh, well, the sound doesn't work because... The distortion pedal is unplugged. I'll just plug it in and now it works. It's not as simple as that. Because no. sometimes you think it's the Wi-Fi router, but you're like, well, all the lights are flashing, but then there's this new light that I didn't know about. I wonder if that means that one's broken. Oh, wait, no, the router has that too. Wait a minute. Now I have no idea what any of the light combinations mean. What is normal again? Or more importantly, the problem is not reproducible. Like this is the number one thing when you're trying to debug software. You got to be able to take discrete steps to reproduce the problem. And this problem just happens sometimes. It's not like it's a result of an action I took. It's not like there's anything you can do to make it happen. It just sometimes it cuts out every 20 minutes for a brief moment. Terrible. I don't understand. What do what normal people do? I guess normal people call call their children, I guess, or call tech support, call Verizon when their Wi-Fi stops working and the Verizon people have to deal with that. But uh, it's, it's not good. But it occurred to me, though, like, you know, Verizon will put, now if you contact Verizon or Comcast, they'll send you a modem, they'll send you a router, do the whole thing, and they'll overcharge you for it. And I always thought it was just so they could, uh, just so they could bill you more, basically, you know, get mm-hmm. some more money out of you. But mm-hmm. it makes sense that if you're trying to troubleshoot it, you actually can have some reliable, reliable chain of devices that's producing a signal you can actually troubleshoot. Whereas if I call them, I'm like, well, I bought this router uh, off the internet, and it had really good reviews, even though it comes from this no-name company and has a horrible setup. And this modem is the one that I bought that's uh, the cheapest one that'll interface with your system. It's supposed to be good enough. And uh, yeah, I got seven different computers that are on it. So I can understand it, but here, I'll tell you this. Pretty sure it's still a money grab. 99% sure about that. Well, I, yeah. I just went through that today because I called and was like, now look, I have my own modem. You're not going to bring a modem for me, are you? No, no, no. Like, we'll just send you the modem. No, no, no. Ah, no, hey, no. Ah, oh, I know what you're going to do. I'm ahead of you. I have it. You're not going to do it to me. All right, sir. I appreciate your technical savvy. We're just going to go ahead and send you that modem. You just hey, go plug it right on into the wall. Uh, whoa. And we'll, uh, we'll send a test signal. Make sure we're Back connected. Back up slowly. Back mm-hmm. up very yes. slowly from the modem. Back, uh, I, I'm, I'm in a call Take center, Take that $10 sir. charge off my bill this month. Well, we're going to go ahead and just uh, add, as a, add that as a credit. It'll come off your next bill. Uh, you just have to pay attention for that. Anyway, let's get back to the show where we talk about things that are not how bad Wi-Fi is. We should have a show about how bad Wi-Fi is that never comes out. That's pretty oh, good. I like that. That's yeah. a lost episode. Or how about this? How about this? We each record a monologue about how bad Wi-Fi is, <laughs> and then you just overlay it uh, and see how it comes out. And we'll, we'll try and leave natural uh, you know, negative space and see if it lines up. That could be pretty magical. I like that a lot, actually. I'm done making practical things people like to listen to. I just want to make art again. 
Are you as, uh, you would describe yourself as artsy fartsy, you'd say? Very, yes. I, I, I fart, I art, I do all the things. Um, I always wanted an artist just to be like, I, I consider myself artsy fartsy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This is like a, a review of like a, a Chelsea gallery show. Is like, the yeah. show was particularly artsy how fartsy. Would you, <laughs> how would you describe your work? Well, like this work in particular is. I would say artsy fartsy. <laughs> the way that the artist inflated pig skins into large zeppelins and hung them around the gallery and then had local graffiti artists come in and uh, tag them, that was uh, particularly artsy fartsy, I would say. Um, very artsy fartsy. <laughs> and the whole thing, the whole thing was live broadcast on Twitch. Uh, and then people could just comment on it, and that just introduced a, a sort of modern artsy fartsy take, you know, like a contemporary fartsiness that uh, is just so absent from the art world. I mean, the technology is the language of these young people, and so little art reflects that. I'll be honest, I like the show, but I would describe it as artsy, not so much fartsy. Well, we can work on that. That's, we, that's something to shoot for. You know, no one wants to be done, so we got something to do. Woo! Yeah, what were we talking about? So I was uh, I was teaching this weekend. There is a, a program at Micah that's a, a post back program specifically designed to teach people about information visualization. It's a very specific program. Lasts a year. It's kind of an intensive thing, twelve mm-hmm. months. And uh, they have two residencies for the program, which are like, it's mostly a, a remote program. So you can you know take it online and be anywhere in the world and participate in the course. But there are two weekends where everyone from the sort of cohort gets together in, in Baltimore and they do like a in-person workshop. And uh, I was involved with one of those workshops this weekend, which is always exciting and fun. And, um, you know, it's interesting because it, it's a very specific and a very practical uh, curriculum because they're, t- they're talking about you know issues of graphic design issues of communication as well as issues of like technical things right like how do you as someone who maybe hasn't made a website before use d3 or some uh, you know chart and, and uh, graphing library to create some interactive visualization uh, it's a very practical um, interesting curriculum because it's touching on a specific thing but you know for for how specific information visualization is it's kind of just the abstract idea of making any information visual, which is mm-hmm. true of all typography. It's true of photography. It's true of... I always feel about the term infographic. You're like, yeah. you mean all of graphic design? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a very a very good way to look at it, honestly. Uh, like, And so people think about it as charts and graphs, and that's just one very specific way of showing some very specific information. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Moby Dick is information visualization. They decided the best way to visualize that information was as words. Um, so... I found myself just sitting there thinking about what I would do if I could come up with like a perfect, no, no I shouldn't say perfect. I'd come up with my ideal graphic design program. You know, I think we've talked on the show about how the kind of design that we find ourselves doing is often um, not represented in programs across the country. We look at, mm-hmm. you know, what, uh, at least what Micah teaches is still, you know, very much graphic design. Uh, and it, it's very hard, I think, for educational institutions to keep up with you know, the pace of technology and the pace of a changing industry, because, you know, you have to, you have standards if you're an institution like that. People teaching the thing have to have proved they're good enough at the thing to do it, usually with a terminal degree, and it takes time to give us terminal degrees, and those programs have to be established by other people with other terminal degrees, and this kind of chain takes a long time for new ideas to kind of trickle down, which honestly is good. It's a nice safety net and like a, a buffer for shitty ideas don't make it through there <laughs> yeah, whereas sure. if, you, if you tried really if you tried to be extremely adaptive and you know uh radical and on the cutting edge with something like a, a degree program i think it would be uh dangerous to just let any idea that seems like it's you'd the, be teaching all kinds of trendy stuff like responsive design right yeah exactly yep. just trendy trendy shit um so i was sitting there thinking about what uh what my ideal design program would be I think that uh, design is really just a practice of understanding more than anything. And when I look at what is the same across uh, maybe more traditional graphic design and what's the same across product design, I'm saying in big air quotes and whatever you call what uh, what a lot of people do at startups now uh, and, you know, other 
fields of design as well, architecture and uh, interior design and these other things. Mm -hmm. The thing that seems to be constant is amongst what I would consider to be good designers is just the the uh, the approach that your job as a designer is primarily to understand the problem and the the idea that that is in and of itself already extremely difficult to do, whether you're working for a client or doing it yourself. Um, and I think there's a lot of designers that I see that are keen to identify with one particular perspective on an issue. Um, so you have certain designers that, you know, call themselves like human-centered designers and everything's about humans. And that's what I focus on. And certain designers that pride themselves on doing lots of data analytics and A-B testing and kind of uh, qu quantifiable verification that their design is working. Uh, you see designers that pride themselves on being more kind of intuitive and doing something that's, uh, you know, gutsy and, and uh, artistic. You're your James Victorias, people like that. Um, and so you have all these different perspectives and so many people align themselves with just one of those perspectives. I think part of what I'm getting at with this idea of like design being a practice of understanding is the ability to move between those different perspectives and understand, really understand the values in each of them uh, to get different uh, contexts for a problem and actually kind of really fully understand it in a way that I think it's hard to do if you've already adopted kind of an approach. Um, the thing I come back to all the time is uh, John Roderick on Roderick on the Line uh, frequently talks about his sort of methodology of trying on ideas like hats uh, he says that other people look at ideas across the room and try and figure out if they like them from a distance and poke holes in them. And he just walks right on up and puts on that idea as a hat and adopts it as his own and says, all right, this is my idea. I think this now. And sort of sees where that logically takes him and like concludes before he makes a, a judgment on it. Uh, and I think that that versatility is really important for a designer. Um, so the question is, how do you make a class that teaches that? I mean, how many other things do you know of that are a thing that makes the same thing? People? I'm thinking of vegetables. Like, you put a vegetable in the ground, more vegetables come out. That's pretty amazing. Yep. People are like that. Actually, in fact, everything in the entire universe is like that, if you think about it that way. Like, everything, every biological thing is that way. Uh, I, well, I mean, biology is one thing. So are you saying that Squarespace is a living thing? Yes. I mean, it could be. You're saying it belongs in the animal kingdom. It's a website that makes more websites. It's a like it's like a biological function. Make more websites with your website. Or as they put it, Squarespace is the easiest way to create beautiful websites, blogs, or online stores for you and your ideas. Oh, I was just gonna make sexy noises as if we were talking about websites doing it and making more websites the whole time. Oh, okay. So websites make more <laughs> websites that look professionally designed regardless of skill level. No coding required. Mm -hmm. They are intuitive and easy to use. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. And it's trusted by millions and some of the most respected brands in the world. All your little baby new websites are going to be so fresh, so clean, so responsibly designed. And so cheap. It starts at $8 a month and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Website reproduction has never been this affordable. So start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code GRID to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for On The Grid. So thank you to Squarespace for supporting 5x5 and On The Grid. Squarespace, build it beautiful. I've got a new Squarespace tagline for them to use. Squarespace, the internet is too small. Make it bigger. Well, I'm talking about a curriculum. So, I mean, I, so I'll say that I think I still, and this could just be my graphic design bias, I still think that like typography is very important. I, I feel like type is a thing that just everybody should have a, a baseline understanding of. Uh, and, and again, very conscious of the fact that this is like graphic designers saying people should understand the thing I understand. But, you know, it's something that truly everybody has to work with. Uh, and it's kind of like the most common type of communication that we have. Uh, and even if you're not, you know, buying your own fonts and, and practicing, you know, good or interesting typography, just an understanding of, you know, what that language is, I think would be beneficial to most people. So, you know, I think some things that are, come from traditional graphic design would still be taught in, in my dream curriculum. But I would spend a lot of time, I think, exploring different perspectives. And I could see like a class for each of these kind of 
archetypes I described. And there are probably more that I can't come up with offhand. But, you know, like taking a course, every designer I feel like should have a course in here's what happens when you use all of the trackers and information available to you to like measure everything you possibly can about a design choice. And here's the ramifications of that. And here's what happens if you actually design with those, with that as your like one truth. Uh, and then here's another course where you're not allowed to do any of that and you're not even really giving any assignments. You're just asked to kind of like create something out of nothing and, and be an artist and like say something. And here's another course where, you know, you are specifically tasked with uh, you know, meeting the the financial uh, needs of a, of a client and sort of working within constraints. Um, and I feel like all those different things, it's not, it's not so many people, I feel like, want to say that one of those ways is the way to do it. And I don't think that's true. I think that not only will different problems call for different approaches, but understanding all of those approaches will make your work better for everything. Like, even though, even if you're working with you know, a museum whose goal is not necessarily to make money, but they're pu- they're fun- they're funded by the public taxes, and their their goal is just to you know educate people about history or something. Uh, if you're working for like the Met, uh, an understanding of how a for-profit business would approach that is just as valuable as an understanding of how an artist would approach that. And I don't see that kind of holistic generalist approach being valued in other industries, maybe just because I'm distant from them. But to me, I think that's what design is in a lot of ways. It's the ability to understand multiple perspectives intimately and, and empathetically, not just at a distance. I like that idea a lot. I, you know, it reminds me of, did you guys ever go through like a debate class club, something? Yeah, I called it middle school. Where you were asked to argue the other side of something, maybe something you don't, you don't agree with at all, but you're asked to argue that point. And the idea being that, like, if you can argue that side of the, if you can argue that side of the debate, then you are better at the general skill of debating. I, I suspect it would feel that way. Like, I think people probably find their way of designing, and that's what feels right to them. But the idea of trying on all the different, not not um, skills, but approaches, right, of of what you might do in your field actually seems really interesting because there's absolutely stuff to learn from there's stuff to learn from all those approaches i guess the hardest part would be kind of figuring out what those are what the archetypes are and if you know what makes those things important because i can wrap my head around the like the guy who a b tests everything and decides based on the data versus like the more emotional guy who does artistic edgy stuff and like would you try to fill it out with as many of those archetypes as possible yeah, well, I think the, the really hard part would be to honestly, wholly commit to one of those things. I, I don't know about you two, but I know this is true of me, and it was true of almost all of my peers I can remember, but, you know, you go into classes, and there, there is already an element of this in any educational program, especially in a college or university, where you have different professors teaching different classes. These people have different perspectives, they have different values, and if you were truly able to just step aside from your your already ingrained values and actually try something new with each of them. I think this is already kind of there, but I was not able to do that. I came to every class with an idea of exactly the kind of work I wanted to make, the kind of people I was looking up to. And mm-hmm. if I couldn't twist the class to sort of allow me to make that kind of work, uh, I just got mad at it, basically. Yeah. Um, and I felt like that was true yeah. of almost everybody. And you, know, you had people that gravitated towards a certain professor a whole bunch, and that was because that, uh, that man or woman or whoever, that, that professor connected with them and agreed with them on sort of what those values were and uh i don't think i would have been able in at the age i was in school to like really just try something new on really try it on john roderick style not you know just yeah fake it and do it at the end and you know kind of do lip service to it well let's say let's say some of the things that you learned in school like i know there are plenty of things that were taught as like part of process that just were not at all useful to me and I just abandoned completely and never looked back like keeping a process book doing a mood board like various things that like I do other things but I definitely don't do those because I don't see the value in them and they don't help me but that was part of somebody else's process was that a valuable thing that I learned how to do those things and is it good that I did those or is it just kind of is it like uh teaching somebody in the wrong learning style and you've just kind of wasted their time maybe because they didn't learn anything well, yeah, it, it kind of like what I kind of took away from those things is that those were the tools that were introduced to be able to help you solve the problem. It was just a very, very narrow focus where I actually think it would be interesting if like at the beginning of a curriculum, uh, there was some sort of a class that had some very generalist view of trying to do just problem solving. 
Uh, so it's not so much like you, here is your project. You're supposed to make a logo. Here's the details, like very specific things, but to give, um, students a series of problems and then try to figure out all the different ways that they would try to solve them and then try to use that as a basis for all of these archetypes um, so that you can kind of go in with a different frame of mind. Say you go into one that's, you know, for web design or something like that and say like, uh, here are the problems that we need to solve. Uh, we need to figure out our options and then introduce tools that are specific to that archetype. So you could go from web design, you could also go to like make a chair, which has a different tool set. So be specific, like what do you mean by problem solving in this case? Because I think to me, like problem solver is another one of those archetypes maybe where it's you approach design as something is fundamentally wrong or broken and it is your job to fix it and there is a solution and yeah. you need to find it. Um, and I, I think that's another perspective you can look at these, uh, you can look at any project with and it's yeah. got its own merits and, and sort of shortcomings. But what do, you, what do you mean when you say problem solving? Give, give an example. So I guess um, one example, like if we were going to pick on web design as like one example, probably because it's the easiest for the three of us to talk about, uh, say that you're prompted with a problem that uh, there is a company, they need to be able to communicate uh, these many things. They need this set of uh, pieces of functionality to go along with a web experience and just kind of leave it more open-ended, almost like if you're to talk to a client in real life. Like yeah. they're saying, like, here's our... I hear what you're saying. But what I'm getting from that, though, is like that's you applying the problem-solving lens, right? Like someone coming to you and explaining their business and, you know, what they do and what they don't do very well. Uh, that's not inherently a problem. Uh, it doesn't inherently have one solution. That's one way you can approach that. Um, like, like for me, a very concrete problem when we dealt with in the office today is... Um, and this is again, very specific. Let's say you have a, a segmented control. Uh, you know, what I'm talking about like, uh, you know, it's got two options, uh, and you're toggling between them. Yeah. Uh, mode switching. yeah. So if it's, if it's a segmented control with only two options, uh, this is one of the oldest UI things in the book. How do you indicate which one is selected and which one is not selected? Uh, when you only have two states available, uh, that's a weird, like that to me is one of the design, a design uh, challenge that is most uh, susceptible to being solved as a problem. But I think you could approach yeah. that in all the ways we described. You could A-B test a million things about it. You could just be an artist and make a statement and uh, you know do something bold and dramatic. Um, you could approach that in any way you wanted, uh, but that one to me seems especially ripe for being solved as a problem with a real solution. Well, yeah, like I understand what you're saying. I think the difference of what we're talking about is specificity. Like what I was thinking of is like a much larger project. Like if you're sitting down with a client the first time and you decide there or in one or two more subsequent meetings that uh, there needs to be a specific web experience, whether it's like a one pager or multiple pages or like, you know, something with a log and whatever, you decide that uh, earlier on. And then the course of that class is going through all the other smaller details of what you're talking about and like going through those smaller problems as well. But it's more like at the beginning trying to figure out what exactly uh, are the decisions that you have to make to figure out like what you're going to be spending the rest of the class on. And it's more like it's it would be leaving it more into the hands of the students to try to figure out like for them to make the call of what they're going to build. I, I think there's obviously a lot of practical problems with what I'm describing. And one of the biggest issues is that as a practicing designer, you often don't get the flexibility to actually really work in this way and, and try different things out. Especially if you're a freelancer, you usually sell yourself as a very particular type of problem solver. No one wants to be explained this crazy idea of different specific perspectives on a problem and how you're going to explore all of them and, you know, kind of go in deep dive of different ways you could view this particular business or whatever your client is. Most people want you to walk in and say, here's my deal. I do A-B testing and I'm going to make three designs for it. I'm going to test all three of them, whichever one performed best we're going to implement. And I guarantee it's going to be at least 10% better than what you're currently working with. And that's how this is going to relate to your bottom line. Um, yeah. that's one way to sell yourself or you sell yourself as like, I'm an established artist with an interesting voice and here's what I've done in the past. And here's what people, you know, find that valuable. Uh, and I'm going to do this for you and it's going to make you cool. It's going to make you interesting. It's going to give you a particular, um, kind of tone and perspective that you can't cr just buy otherwise. Um, there's, there's ways you can sell yourself, but I don't think you can sell yourself on this like holistic generalist approach. Uh, and then similarly, I think it's hard to so you stuff like that to a to a to an employer as a as an employee to say I'm going to come in and do all these things. Um, so I think that part of the part of the the reason this is hard to 
actually put into practice is that all the systems we have in place, you know, not necessarily by design, but just, you know, by their very nature, kind of push back against that. They, they favor things that are more easily uh, explainable. Well, also, I mean, one thing, too, about this is I wonder if this uh, is a good program for Andy Mangold or a good program for everybody. Well, of course, yeah. Let's say there's a, we have a kind of timid student who doesn't quite know what they want to do yet, and they're thrown into this open environment where they're meant to kind of embody an idea of a designer and now go. Like, the, I don't know if you're proposing a lack of structure or not, but it does seem like something where just like, so many students can get lost and they never make their way through the system because we have a very open-ended idea of what a designer is supposed to be. And there were absolutely students in my classes at SCAD that uh, would get a somewhat open-ended project idea and then have no idea how to execute on it and so not do anything. And I don't know if that's totally their fault. Like, I know, like, you can definitely say, hey, man, you got to have something, so show up with anything. But, you know, I also wonder if it's just, like, maybe they just learn better in a more structured environment. And, like, yes, they'll get out in the world and realize that they have to make, uh, they have to solve bigger problems or work in a different way and be, be have the confidence to deal with, a, with uh, a client that doesn't quite have a perfect brief. But not a 20-year-old. They're not ready for that yet. Well, that's the thing. I think you nailed it. And like I said, me in college would not have been able to have done this either. Uh, so I, I'm, I think I'm describing some vague idea of what I feel like this should be with the recognition that I don't think it's applicable. Because um, that's the other thing, like everything I just said about how you would sell yourself as a freelancer or sell yourself as an employee, it's the same thing when you're selling an educational program to potential students, right? Like you can't, I feel like you can't sell the idea of everything. And, and that's like, ultimately, to me, design is just this very big, very uh, broad idea of the way in which just the way in which decisions are made, uh, and the way in which you think about things. Like for me, design really is more like philosophy. And so trying to encompass all of that, uh, and kind of market that and treat, treat it as big as I want it to be, I think is, is very hard to do. A question that came to my mind while you guys were just talking about this part, like I agree that just um, having a very vague sense of what you do on a resume is really bad for a lot of students because at some point you have to be able to say like what you can actually accomplish rather than everything. But um, aside from somebody trying to market themselves for a position at a company or for freelance, like my question is more of what are students currently lacking that if they had more experience in school would actually make them more viable or a more salient applicant for a position. Well, I mean, the the thing I always thought about when I was at Pentagram was like, my worry was more that they have all the technical ability to keep up. And like, then there's just the part of that makes you kind of a go-getter and that's just who you are. Like, I never expected a school to teach someone that. You just kind of have to meet them and see what it's like. Like, are they, you meet them, you have an interview with them and you find out that they're, very confident and they're going to go do something and they're not just going to sit at their desk and wait because nobody called them and told them to come up and, you know, find a project for themselves. Like in, in some ways I do wonder if all the discussion of like design is philosophy in a university setting is, is really all that valuable or they're just like people who have, who, who are interested in it for that, those reasons. And everybody would just be benefited if it was treated like a trade school. We teach you the technical skills and the people who love it and want to pursue the research of it are just going to go do that. And everyone else will be happy that they learn the skills and will do production design. And that is good and great. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And like, I don't know, who are the people in our lives that didn't have any idea that they love design and didn't go get it themselves and then were turned on by a teacher and all of a sudden their attitude shifted and all of a sudden now they have the confidence to go out in the world and learn it themselves. Does yeah, that happen? I, I don't much? know. I mean, I, I kind of don't want this conversation to become the what is wrong with design education discussion because I think that's a different discussion. I, yeah. I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm interested yeah, sure. in like what, I, I guess this is just a weird way for me to get at the idea of what is it about me uh, that I've learned that I think it makes me okay at what I do uh, and, and how would that be communicated to others? Because there are so many practical considerations about you know, actual running actual degree programs and educational institutions that, you know, I, I feel like we could talk about it another time maybe. Sure. Um, well, what are you getting at? What do you, what about you? Well, I, I think what I'm getting at is that uh, Dan, you asked like, what are students lacking the skills? And I, I don't think that it's that students are coming out of 
design schools unprepared for the real world. You know, I'm not like, I don't have that Montiero approach that design schools are doing everyone a disservice and stealing your money. Um, I, I, I think it's more that I notice people, especially young people and even more established, you know, people that are more experienced and have done this for longer, kind of coming, approaching the industry from the position of like a character, like, 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 like from, from position of one of these archetypes, like they see themselves as X. Uh, and I think part of this is like the, the weird like idea of celebrity in the design world, right? Like there's, there's this weird, like there are the James Victories and the Sagmeisters and the Paula Shares and the, you know, the people that have a weird sense of, uh, of importance uh, that I think extends beyond their work in all these situations. Like it's, and that's why I think it's celebrity and not just recognition of, of talent and skill. Um, and I think that having so many visible people that kind of, are very dogmatic in their approach. Like they've got the one way they figured it out. This is how you do it is what creates this idea that everybody needs to figure out their own one way. And what I've been advocating for in myself for the longest time is trying to get away from that idea and just try and actually embrace other ways of thinking. And the more I've been able to do that, and it is so, so hard. And I don't, I don't mean to like, it's not easy for me to actually think about something in a different way. Um, and the things that have made me do this more than anything have not been, you know, design tasks or or clients or anything. It's been running a business and trying to imagine what it's like applying for a job and what kinds of things we should ask a potential applicant to do or how what kind of questions we should ask them. Um, you know, things like that that really take me completely out of my comfort zone. Like I've basically literally never applied for a job. Like I didn't have a resume at all until some scholarship in college told me I had to make one to get the scholarship. I was like, I guess I'll make a resume now in like senior year of college. Um, so like I truly can't actually be in that person's shoes, but in order for me to do my job, well, I have to try my hardest to actually put myself in those shoes to try that idea on like a hat to, to get, put myself in that position. I think that, that uh, trying to get better at that is I think the way that I will become a better designer. And that was something that I don't think anyone ever really talked about in my education like it, there was the idea of like oh yeah you know try and imagine the audience or the customer um but it was always this other it was this target it was a it was a, a tool and now more and more i feel like actually trying to be that person to be the user that you know struggles with reading or, or be the user that uh that you know doesn't understand anything and has no patience and is you know just in the middle of something uh, drastic and you know can't give any uh, intellectual or, or time to this particular interface or whatever it is you're designing it has made me like that awareness that like thoughtfulness and understanding more and more I think is what makes a designer a good designer and not just one of these other characters I don't know I don't even think of myself as the most empathetic guy in the world but I do think that's a skill and it's just but in a different way like it's not I don't know I feel like you say that and you're like you know an empathetic person, somebody who's like saving, well, I was going to say like saving a puppy off the street, saving a kitten from a drain pipe. Well, I, I don't think, I think altruism and empathy are different. Like, like doing good things. Uh, for example, here's a good, I think Mother Teresa was generally very altruistic, but not very empathetic. Uh, okay. Like she was a person that was very set in her ways. She had the correct answer, and the correct answer was our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and she's going to go and tell people the, the sort of solution. And she truly, like, I think, at the core of her being, wanted to spend her life doing good. Uh, and whether she did good or bad, we can argue about until the cows come home. But I don't think she did that from a position of truly understanding other people's perspectives. She did it from a position of, like, I'm just going to be good, and these are the rules for how you be good, and I'm going to follow those rules. Um, that's similarly, that's a better way of looking at it because I think of I think there's that combination of of empathy and altruism all the time that like because you are empathetic now you are altruistic but it doesn't have to extend it can just be like your ability to see someone else through someone else's eyes right or stand in someone else's shoes and that you can decide to do with it what you want right you can yeah. decide to be good to them you can decide to whatever but we're talking about the ability to be able to do that yeah i don't think think any of us are necessarily better than anyone else at doing that but we are saying that's probably a very important skill well yeah most important skill i don't think it's a i don't think it's a thing you can measure certainly and I'm, i'm not even entirely sure how you learn it like i know that i have learned it over the past like eight years just by constant exposure to 
people with different ideas and that were willing to explain themselves. Like is, is basically how I describe it. Like me showing up at art school from my sheltered suburbs upbringing uh, was a, a big culture shock. Uh, and I was all of a sudden surrounded by, you know, punks and freegans and uh, various activists of all kinds. And we had one neo-Nazi that was in our class, um, just all kinds of people and, you know, artists and people like that tend to be generally, I think, pretty vocal, uh, not necessarily like extroverted vocal, but uh, if asked about something, they'll, they'll explain it to you. Um, and that exposure, I think, is what uh, has slowly made me a more empathetic person. I, I think I honestly came to college one of the the least uh, thoughtful <laughs> and sensitive people uh, you yeah. could possibly imagine. Um, I very much thought that I was uh, on the right path and had some answers and stuff, um, just because I was stubborn and, and you know a bit of an asshole, probably. Um, well, the way I think I learned that the most from people asking genuine questions, and sometimes it's a boss, sometimes it's a client, it's mainly been through work. I feel like I didn't get this as much at school, but it's really just like someone asking you a very serious and genuine question about the work that you presented to them, and you now have to kind of answer that because that's, that's their real reaction to what you just did. Like, oh, well, then how does this do that? How does that work? What is this? Mm -hmm. How is this over here? And you have to think, all right, I... I didn't think of that, obviously, because here's what it is. Here's what's on the piece of paper. Here's what's on the screen. I have to answer that question. I have to get in their brain and think, okay, so that's how they thought about this. That's how they reacted to it. Or just seeing someone use your thing and be like, oh, yes. that's what you're going to do with it. I think that's taught me the most. And I didn't get that from school for the most part. Maybe some of the toughest professors. But I think for the most part, people were too nice. And then also, it wasn't real. So there weren't. I mean, how do you do that when it's not real and it's like, ah, here's packaging for a fake product for fake people that we guessed at. There's no real person in front of you to be like, I don't, I don't understand it. This doesn't make any sense to me. It's, a, it's yeah. your peers being like, I think the font was good or I don't like that font today. And that's not really all that valuable, is it? That's, that's the best feedback. <laughs> yeah. I don't like that font today. It's not yeah. very in. I, well, I kind of feel like there could be a combination of things that are really having to be considered. Because one is uh, you and your team, because obviously you guys have to work together to have a final product. Um, there's the client, uh, even if it's you know the company that you work for or a separate client or whatever, whomever you're making the thing for. But then ultimately, there's also the people that are going to use it. So you have to consider everything. Yeah. And like, I think it's really important. Uh, and I actually wish they would happen more often uh, for students to be able to sit down with people who would actually use it in real life. Like if it was a retail experience and it was part of like the checkout system or something like that, having people go through it or having somebody use the app in front of you and actually like having to ask the right questions and get their perspective and then having to go back to their team and to the client, having to figure out how that bounces out with like business goals, how it bounces out with like how you're actually going to make the thing and like having that really balanced out would be way more beneficial. But to your point, like having a fake client for fake people doing fake things just because it's like it teaches you how to make a like paper box isn't really that useful for anybody. That being said, I will say if 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 we let's say you don't have access to the real people that this thing is for, because um, I, I mean, honestly, like sometimes you just never do like your clients, not the person it's for. They're just asking questions from a person who runs that business. And so they're you know, pretty well equipped, but they're not the actual final user. Yeah. But I will say this, the most valuable people on teams that I've worked on have been the people who are able to put themselves in the shoes of somebody else and ask those real questions. Uh, and sometimes, honestly, to the point of being annoying, where you're just like, who would think yeah, oh yeah. that? But, but people do think that. And I think if you can do that too, if you can be like, all right, I'm going to try my best. We're going to get over any sort of preciousness. Why is that here? And because I don't understand, you're like, what do you, what do you mean you understand? Like, I'm trying to be the person. I don't understand that decision at all because I'm the person that's looking at it for the first time. You don't have any benefit of explaining it to me. I'm just seeing it for the first time. I don't understand it. Um, and if you're if you're a kind of person that can do that, I consider you to be very valuable on my team or as a coworker or whatever. I think that's a great skill to have because you're again, you're not always going to get access to the person it's for. If you're very lucky, you get to test with them. It's not always the case. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, too, like in a classroom setting, especially at that age, it's kind of a Russian roulette of whether or not you're going to get somebody who's also a student working with you um, to have that sort of insight or just that have that sort well, of... Well, um, I would say in that situation, that's the role of the teacher to fill. I would not expect that exactly. from the student, but not... Some of my teachers did do that, and that was great. Not all of them. Yeah. 
Um, well, yeah, I mean, that's the mixed bag, too, is that, like, technically, it really should be the professor who's having a nudge every once in a while to kind of remind you about, like, whatever you're creating for, whoever you're creating for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, not every professor is going to do that. And also having the expectation that every professor would do that is also a bit of a mixed bag because that's assuming that each class is going to have that same structure. So, like, I love the idea, but I also kind of feel like it's, it's, there's still going to be a level of separation between, like, this, um, like, test scenario that you're going through in education and then actually it being applied to real clients and, and real people in real life. But back to Andy's point for a second, though, this is a type. Like, I'm, I am a person who's, like, trying to test for and solve a problem. I'm doing that thing. I'm not being the the edgy artist who makes a decision and declares it so, which is or or the like uh, the quantified person that just does the thing ten different ways without much thought and measures which one was best uh, without trying to sit there and like suss out logically what the solution is. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's very true. And that's that's the thing is like I um, it's it's so it's so weird because I think these these different like archetypes are so much in, in conflict with each other and and yet like, i feel like kind of managing that conflict is the way you actually find some valuable yeah. holistic approach to things and well, I just, because you can be that problem solver guy as much as you want to be and then sometimes you have to say it's blue because it's blue because we're done it's blue yeah <laughs> and there's no other way around it some decisions are subjective and you have to make a decision you have to stand strong on it and you got to move forward because we can we can never deliver. We can never have a final product because we're not sure what blew. I'm really interested in trying to document these types now. I think we're using, you know, I wish I could spend more time being precious about the language to describe these things. I don't even think edgy artist type is the right, I don't know how to describe that person. It's like, you know, intuition is Confident their, is from their the primary gut. value. Yeah, I, I think, think, yeah, I don't mean to, I don't mean to break it down into just like frivolous artist type. I just mean those decisions that you just have to stick with and no amount of questioning or measuring is going to do anything about it. And the better you are at those gut decisions, the better you are at this one type of thing. Yeah. Cause I feel like, uh, you know, the, the best way to maybe continue this conversation and actually get somewhere with it is to try and like share these ideas and document them in some formal way and then see how people respond to it. Because, you know, I, I think about it, you, you know, you have the different, types of like literary criticism you know you can take like a marxist view of literary criticism or you can take uh another view of <laughs> trying to remember high school now or are there like a whole set of them modes of literary criticism i'm going to google right now do you want to come up with modes of graphic design archetype we have three we've got three so far the problem solver the tester and the intuition the the gutsy type yeah so let's see so i'm looking at uh, types of literary criticism now we have moral formal psychoanalytic marxist reader response structuralism post-structuralism new historicism post-colonial feminist and gender queer studies uh yeah i feel like um there would be value in and and, and the whole my my understanding of this is the whole point of this is that anything you read can be broken down in any of these ways and that's what i'm trying to say about these different approaches to design like you could look at anything and criticize it on any of these different uh you know sort of value sets and no one is correct, uh, like just doing things the logical way where you kind of sit down and make reasoned explanations for why everything was done is one way to do things, uh, but it's not the one and only way to do things. And that's the way that I have favored. And I think it's obvious from this show, if you listen to it at all, that, you know, being able to explain why and give some reason for something has been a value of mine for, for a long time. Uh, and I think that was kind of a, a safety net for me, right? Like if I could explain it, then I was sheltered from the critics because I could explain it. So what they say about it doesn't matter because I explained it. And so I think that what is interesting to me is the fact that these can be applied to anything. uh, And each of them gives you a new perspective on the same idea. So the thing that I I struggle with a little bit is that the things that we're talking about, like the more uh, data-driven, the more like hypothesis-driven stuff compared to maybe things that we did in a graphic design curriculum compared to things that are more like art-driven. Technically, a lot of these things are already different degree programs. Like you you can go to school and go into interaction design. You can go in for industrial design. You can go in for graphic design. And all of these uh, employ some level of problem-solving that I think we all share on, on some level, but ultimately there are different tools for different mindsets for different people who have different uh, skill sets. 
And that at some point, isn't that really just what we're talking about? Like if somebody is more analytical, maybe they should have just belonged in interaction design rather than graphic uh, design. I could see a way and these are applied to all of them, though. Like I could see this if you did this well, if you prepared the models or the archetypes well, maybe they apply to every single discipline. And, and, and that's what I'm getting at. I can understand it between like between interaction design and say like typography, but I'm not sure if I see it in between like the overall field of graphic design and the overall field of industrial design, if that's why they couldn't apply to both. And I think there's definitely sort of leanings in each industry towards a particular value set. Um, like, like you're describing Dan, like I think, you know, people that call themselves user experience designers probably favor some of this logical approach. Um, but even within that, there's some people that are more about having good explanations for things and some people that are more about testing a billion different things without too much forethought to try and figure out which one is you know going to do the best. Um, and I think that you, when you rarely see somebody operating in an industry and using a different value set, um, for example, like OK Focus uh, makes crazy things for websites uh, that their value is clearly not anything that you'd be taught in a user experience class. Um, but I think that that's what makes their work interesting is that they're bringing a different value set to that same medium. And I feel like there's a lot of untapped potential in looking at a medium from different perspectives instead of saying, well, this is the one that makes sense because, you know, so much of the web is dictated by, um, you know, client needs. Uh, and those clients are businesses that are running very practical operations and need to make money and make things, make these numbers go up. Um, because that's the driver of so much of that work that's where you get that value set from. Um, whereas in, you know, the graphic design world, if you're talking about uh, posters and book covers and stuff, uh, I, I feel like that world is nowhere near as dictated by, listen, uh, you know, this poster better sell this many more tickets to the show and much more dictated by this better just be cool. Like this needs to say something about this event and about uh, this institution's place in sort of the cultural spectrum. And it, there's a place there for that kind of more artistic voice, that intuition. Um, and I think if we could just accept that every single one of these approaches is uh, valuable and applicable in all of these mediums, there's all sorts of little corners of, of design that are kind of unlocked when you think about it that way. Or maybe not. Maybe there's no reason to make, <laughs> make an extremely practical functional poster or make a uh, very intuitive artistic uh, web app. Um, but I, I just think... Um, it's helped me understand things better to be exposed to all these different ideas. And I'm thankful for, to our clients for that. And part of it is that people will come to us and we try to be as much of a blank canvas as possible, uh, you know, and bring, we basically try and pitch ourselves as bringing our expertise to the table, not necessarily a prescriptive process for getting a sort of understood result, which means that we oftentimes have the opportunity to work with a very different value set than what we're used to. And for as much as I'm critical of all these other value sets, and I am primarily critical if there was any ever any doubt, um, it's very interesting to be able to like actually just work in that way. We have a client right now that is unlike any other client we've had before in that they are specifically paying us to do the craziest, most impractical, future-facing things imaginable, right? Like if you're working for any other client on interfaces or apps, they want it to be intuitive, they want it to be usable, they want it to be practical so it can be built soon and cheaply and they can put it to use. And this client is doing the exact opposite. They're like, listen, I want you to design the craziest motherfucking <laughs> feed anybody has ever seen in any app uh, that is so impossible to build because uh, we want to just, you know, that's, that's what our values are right now. And that's not my personal values, right? Like I, I'm much more in the first camp of let's do something that makes sense that is uh, simple and just straightforward. Uh, but to actually get the opportunity to do that, just to be like, all right, well, this is what they've specifically hired us to do, is do this crazy thing that is normally against my values. Let's just go do it, um, has been very, very um, instructive for me. All right, so my happy ending this time around is something that's super practical, uh, super relevant to something I've been working on lately because uh, recently I decided it was high time that I finally built a gaming PC. Uh, I've been playing video games on the iMac for the longest time. It's getting very old. It can't handle all the games I want to play, so it kind of just made sense. But 
Uh, I've been really, really anxious about building a PC for myself for a long time now because it's really complex. Like you have to get a lot of the parts to um, that will work together. Like there's different sockets for different CPUs. This works with different kinds of memory. Like all these things work with different kinds of video cards. It's just it's a lot of effort uh, if you're going to build your own PC. And I kind of wanted to do it because I thought it would be a fun project. Um, so I was recommended by somebody else. Um, try out this site, which is my happy ending, uh, PC Part Picker, uh, which is PCPartPicker.com. The reason why I have such an affection for this site is because they made everything that I was very anxious about very easy to handle. Um, like if you go in, you can go and find certain parts and it just like, it gives you a blank field for each of the pieces that you need to be able to build your PC. So you have your CPU, uh, your motherboard, memory storage, all, you know, all the bits. And oh, this is nice. I would have liked this when I was a kid making PC games. Exactly. Okay. So I mean, making PCs for PC games. Yep. So uh, the cool thing about it too is that there's certain things that like you initially don't think about uh, that they go ahead and consider. Like you're choosing all your parts. You want to make sure that the socket on the motherboard uh, fits with the CPU that you want uh, and that everything meshes well. But along the way, uh, you start to accrue the amount of wattage that you need from your power supply. And they even considered that. So like once you get down to that point, they'll say like, okay, all the parts here need like 450 watts. So you need at least a power supply that has at least that, probably more if you want to be able to add on stuff down the road. And also if you have like extra fans in the case, all these things. So it just makes it. So if I'm if I'm on the site right now and I'm slowly picking my parts, mm -hmm. it's only offering me parts that will work. Is that what's happening? Yeah, exactly. So if you choose your CPU, wow. then it's going to show you all the motherboards that will mesh well with that. Uh, and on top of that, what's really cool is that it will give you like the best price where you can uh, wherever on the Internet where you can find it. But if you want to be like really choosy, like I want to find everything on Amazon so I can get it shipped to Amazon Prime. It lets you do that and it'll directly link to the thing on Amazon for that. Um, so it's just really cool. It makes it really easy to find all this stuff uh, and also be able to put it together, too. So uh, I, I highly recommend it for anybody who has to go and build a PC, even if you've been doing it for years, because it just makes the process much more smooth. Or maybe just anyone who wants to build a website and sees an insanely complex problem <laughs> solved in a pretty understandable way. Exactly. This is wild, actually. Yeah. I'm pretty impressed by this. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's other cool parts, too. Like, you can save uh, builds, and you can also share them. So you can see other people's builds for, like, you know, their, their gaming console PC or something that they have for more intense work, like video production or something like that. So you can, get, you can see what everybody else is building and get an idea, like, what I want to do this. Like, does it make sense at this price point? So I, I really like it. See, I never had a uh, building computers phase. It always seemed complicated and electrocuty to me. But uh, hey, I fried a motherboard or two in my life. <laughs> <laughs> what you're describing right now is the thing that I wish I had for everything. Yes, bikes. You want this for bikes? Oh yes. And oh, fuck, do I want this for bikes? Windows. Man, yes, I want this. Do for... these windows fit in my house? Matt, you are describing the... all. Yeah, plumbing. I want this for plumbing. I want this for bicycles. <laughs> I want this for uh, for just everything. It's, it's like uh, and that's. I'm always jealous of what nerds will make to celebrate their own nerd culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the people that are fans of different cultures just don't have the technical ability to make those things for their own cultures, and so they just don't get them. <sighs> but I would love this for all, of the, all the things that I love. It would be amazing. This has been On The Grid, episode 117. This week, I'm just going to ask you to follow us on Twitter, or at least follow our Twitter robot, at GridShow. At Gritshow is a weird mashup of the tweets between Dan, Andy, and I, so it'll say things like, your train is delayed because of Richard Sherman. Also, it'll tweet out links from our subreddit, so if you enjoy the show, I think you'll have fun with it. Follow us at Gridshow and tell your friends. Thanks to Glassboy for the interlude music, Girlfriends for the theme music, and finally, thanks to you for listening. Until next week. That's fine. I'll just archive this text file I made of 40-some nicknames for Baltimore <laughs> I was going to release one week at a time. That's fine. Yeah. That was Charm <laughs> City. wasn't going to be a great running Baltimore. bid or anything. It's all right. Yeah. The, I had you guys record a million of those things. We never used them. It's not like anyone's going to tune in for my great nicknames about Baltimore. You can just go through them all now and I'll put them at the end if you want.
uh, <laughs> just just to do intros all, all at the same time. Mm-hmm. No, no. For those of you interested, though, you should uh, look up the history of Baltimore's official slogans and nicknames because it is a rich, beautiful history. Yep. We still have we still have benches in the city that are emblazoned with Baltimore, greatest city in America. Interesting. Which to me is like honestly a great slogan because everyone that lives in Baltimore knows that that can't that's not true. Like it's, <laughs> it's a little tongue in cheek. Like I love this city. I will defend it to anybody that will say bad things about it, but even I will never suggest it as the greatest city in America by any metric really. I mean, if you're going to put a number on it, 